wondering, by way of a cold open, did you do dry January? No, obviously not. Obviously not. I don't know your life. Oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking, actually, that the narration of this book is a bit like being hungover and paranoid. Anyway, what did you? Well, yeah, I did. But, I mean, kind of every month for me is dry January because you know I only drink dry martinis. So I don't yeah. I don't see what the big deal is. Sorry. <laughs> that Set me up. Such me up. a sh- joke i'm so sorry yeah very good very very good i have no way to build on this that was the end of the bit uh save me from my shelf i'll be right back Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Where's old gummage over here is Daniel. Ooh... So, a, I'm surprised you even know about that. <laughs> uh, That's a deep cut. Well, that is a deep cut. Oh, there must be weird American scarecrow people. If I only had a brain, is Abby. <laughs> so, letters, as you guys know, have now been moved to our satellite show, SMFMS Bookends. That's going to come out in one week. So, if you've written into us or want to hear outtakes from this episode, more analysis, or discussions about what we're currently reading and watching, then tune into that show. As we discussed last time, the schedule and format of Save Me From My Shelf has changed, but our heart and spirit remains the same. This is also a reminder that here at Aston University, we have an undergrad program in English Lit. Daniel and I teach on that. We teach a lot of really fun courses. We also have a brand spanking new master's in English, and you'll probably see Daniel and I over there on that course too. So please contact me if you are interested in maybe signing up to our classes. Right, so Daniel, what is our text today, friend? Last night I dreamt I went to Cornwall again. The clay country looked remote and uninhabited, but like all dreamers, I was possessed with supernatural powers, so could ascend above it to get a better look. Nanpian, Truan, Lanjeth, Bugle, Sticker. (laughs) Those familiar names seemed alien and mysterious to me now, and the clay tips, those once triumphant piles of slag, vivid in their grayness, were now overgrown with low-lying scrub. I explored further, all my old haunts, once bright and brimming with vitality. Dairyland, the Big St. Osto Asta, Gnome World, they were all now decayed and shabby. Cornwall was mine no longer. Cornwall was no more. Until the summer, when the tourists returned with some much needed cash. We're doing Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, 1938. I did not get a word of that. I feel like I need a Rosetta Stone set to Daniel. Oh, okay. Sorry, you have a town named Bugle and... (laughs) Sticker. And Sticker. Yeah, I love that. Not Truro. Truro's not in the clay country. Oh, is it? Get a grip. (laughs) Are you from dirtbag country? Claybag country? Claybag. I am indeed a claybag. Yeah. (laughs) 
You are a true son of Birmingham, but what, your mother is a clay bag. Yeah, your mother's a clay bag. Yeah. People, say, people would say that at school, and I was just like, well, it's not You're right, it's a true fact. Fair cop. So, it should go without saying, we're about to spoil this text for you. The content. Today, we're going to be talking about gaslighting, emotional abuse, sexual manipulation, murder, drowning, cancer, suicide, fires, and a lot of surveillance and paranoia. We should also say that in addition to this being our big Valentine's Day episode, it's also Ash Wednesday. So we've accidentally picked the perfect text for you when you want to feel romantic and then immediately penitent. Would you like to do some background for us, please? Yes, I very much would. Daphne du Maurier was a 20th century English novelist. She's famous for writing these sort of gothic-y, slightly romantic, maybe even sensationalistic works. So she was born in 1907 to this quite kind of like posh family of writers and theatrical types, and she generally milled around these upper-crust circles. She married a British army officer in the 1930s. It was that sort of, you know, like Agatha Christie and Cluedo and everything, isn't it? Everybody's a colonel. <laughs> Can't move for colonels. Clue, Cluedo is what British people call the game Clue. Which is from Birmingham. So I think I'm allowed to call it by its real That's name. That's fine. I'm just translating. No need to get hostile. Okay. She has a reputation for having been kind of frosty and reclusive, uh, and therefore a bit like maybe one of the characters in her books. There's a lot of speculation about her private life. There's rumors of homosexual relationships. You know, some people think she was bisexual. Queer reading! Hooray! Yeah, throw that out there. Well, just pot... Possibly somebody being gay. Is that a queer reading? Yes, I'll okay, take it. Cool. Let's just celebrate it. It's Valentine's Day. Yeah, all right, yeah. Rebecca is probably her most famous book, isn't it? But there's also My Cousin Rachel. I thought you were going to say My Cousin Vinny. Which my Cousin <laughs> Vinny, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, My Cousin Rachel, Jamaica Inn, and short stories including The Birds and Don't Look Now. In her lifetime, I think she was very popular but was not very like critically admired, but I think mm-hmm. now she's also critically admired. Her work's continue to be celebrated and they've been adapted into films Hitchcock he did Rebecca in 1940 and The Birds in 1962 his Rebecca is really good yeah I was gonna watch it in preparation for this but then didn't I did watch it and I am going to be bringing out my worst Joan Fontaine accent she spends the whole time going mix him Maxim, we are happy, aren't we? Maxim. So there's also an opera of Rebecca. There was a recent adaptation of Rebecca as well, don't forget, with um, Lily James and Army Hammer. I tell you what, I got all geared up to hate watch that movie. It was actually all right. All right. It was not bad at all. Dumarie, she spent a lot of her life in Cornwall. As a Celt, did you feel reinvigorated after this? Like a vampire that's just supped. Not hugely, because it's about the De Winters. It's the Norman yoke, isn't it? They're just sitting on top of us all. Okay. Well, I'm sorry about that. We'll try to do better next time. We'll try to get a real Cornish experience. Shall we get started? Yes, please. I mean, it's my turn. (laughs) So, we open on a famous line. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. And I've got a question already. Go on. I always thought it was Mandalay. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was the same as, like, in Burma. How do you pronounce it? Mandalay or Mandalay? Manderley. Really? Yeah, that's how I would pronounce it. Well, I, I mainly hear people say Mandalay. So I think it's meant to sound kind of Orientalist. 
So what do you think it's already doing a sort of Kubla Khan kind of like slightly orientalist in a dream yeah. sort of thing? Okay. Or Citizen Kane. Maybe Orson Welles read this. Uh, maybe. Yeah. That's interesting. Regardless, our posh pronunciations are going to make us hemorrhage listeners at the Henley Regatta. Yeah, this opening line then, anyway, it gives us all the major themes of the text, doesn't it? So we've got dreams, memory, returning, je reviens. Uh, that, that will be relevant later. Aristocratic estates. So just all of that's kind of encapsulated in this one line, isn't it? Anyway, so we've got this unnamed narrator, we, and we never find out her name, do we? So this narrator, she keeps dreaming that she's returned to this big palatial estate, but in her dream it's this sort of creepy ruin that's been reclaimed by nature. She never mentions her dream to her husband, she says, because they don't speak of Mandalay anymore. And in fact, there's some kind of sort of trauma that our narrator is alluding to. These are the other big themes of the novel, aren't they? Trauma communication or the lack thereof so what happened at this great estate let's just leave that behind we get a sense that whatever happened to this poor guy her husband that his wife's now caring for him and exercising this kind of certain level of love and control so it's just a bit like the end of jane Eyre, ain't it you know when that guy rochester <laughs> yeah got his burned off or whatever it was that happened hand but metaphorical d- yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, they live at this quiet, unglamorous little hotel where they they try not to run into too many people they know. They're happy, but it's come at great cost. So what happened? Flashback to a few years before, when our unnamed narrator was a young woman of 21, timid, unsophisticated, and working as a lady's companion to this vulgar rich bitch named Mrs. Van Hopper, who I would love to play in the movie. The only American in the book as well, isn't she? I think that's sort of these vulgar Americans. Oh, I would chew this scenery until it was in shreds. I would love to play this role. To be honest, I think if I played any role in the adaptation of this, it would also be Mrs. Van Hopper. Yeah, everyone yeah, wants think, to be Mrs. Van But I just think I could do it. I could see that, actually. Yeah. Get, get a flashy scarf around your hair. Yeah. You know, big, box hat. big sunglasses. Yeah. Lots of cigarettes. Kind of how you look now, honestly. Just... <laughs> yeah. So they're vacationing in a ritzy hotel in Monte Carlo, and Mrs. Van Hopper is gossiping about a wealthy, mysterious man, Max de Winter, who's also staying in the hotel. She loves all the society page stuff, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. She just yeah. loves all the, the poshos. You know, they say he never got over the sudden death of his glamorous first wife, Rebecca, who drowned in the bay near their estate. So Mrs. Van Hopper is a huge snob and tries to collect influential friends, and she kind of doesn't realize how vulgar she is. Quote, It seemed as though notables must be fed to her, much as invalids are spooned their jelly. Hey, baby, that's just how I hustle. And she especially wants to befriend this elusive and brooding Max de Winter. So he finally crosses her path one day in his full glowering tumescence. And wow, this. very painful, can't it? Because have a permanent one. And the narrator is a bit starstruck. And I mean, yes, he is a bit brooding and handsome, but does he have good cord management? Because that really revs my engine. Cord management? Yeah. What, like cord shirts? No, like cords, you know. Oh. In my home, all of my cords are very neatly... I bet. Tucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're turning into such a bitch. 
I was always a bitch. Everyone, mother is here. <laughs> the Duchess of Cuttington herself. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Mrs. Van Hopper wrangles Max de Winter in having coffee with her, except a little wrench in the works. He's like, hey, how about this unnamed narrator come join us for a coffee? And she's like, what, what, what? A borderline servant? So they all have their coffee. The conversation gets more and more awkward when Mrs. Van Hopper keeps asking questions about the De Winter estate, Manderley, despite Max clearly not wanting to talk about it or about his late wife. He does seem weirdly charmed by the unnamed narrator, though, despite her being, quote, a raw ex-schoolgirl, red-elbowed and lanky-haired. Thankfully, Mrs. Van Hopper comes down with the flu. She's forced to stay in bed for two whole weeks. The narrator goes down to lunch early one day, thinking mercifully she'll be alone for once. But she discovers Maxim there, who's clearly been dining very early that day to avoid Mrs. Van Hopper. They end up having lunch together and have a much nicer time. Aww. Yeah, they hit it off. Despite him being a handsome, brooding sophisticate who's a good 20 years older than her, and she a mousy, unworldly thing. Quote. Oh, give me a good Maxim voice. I've enjoyed this R with you more than I've enjoyed anything for a very long time. How's that? That's pretty good. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. You've taken me out of myself, out of despondency and introspection, both of which have been my devils for a year. Oh, be still my beating heart. They hang out more as the days go on. They go for drives, day trips. Maxim and our narrator... Oh, they're kind of almost dating, aren't they? This is the textbook definition of a situationship. Also, I just kept thinking that while this is romantic, please do not go to a second location with a man you barely know. What do you mean by second? Well, so they're, they're in the hotel together having their little dates, but the rule is if he's like, hey, let's go someplace alone, more private, to a second location. Oh, okay. You don't leave the party with somebody you barely know. You're probably right. Yeah. But th there is a lot of weird peril in their dates because he keeps taking all of those hairpin turns on cliffs in his little sports car. Yeah. And it made me very nervous, but I did keep thinking that he would have nailed driving around all of those orange cones on that driving test episode of the Brady Bunch. Love that one. I didn't want to brag, but I did have Nick at night as a child. Oh yeah, so. uh, yeah. that's come up on this podcast before. <laughs> It's going as well as it could between these two trips. Let's do that. Because <laughs> he's just brooding all the time of his memories and his secrets. How and do you really feel, Daniel? <laughs> and she's always worrying that, oh, I'm not good enough for him. I'm a little church mouse. What's he wanting with me? There's a sort of famous exchange where the narrator goes, I wish I was a woman of about 36, dressed in black satin with a string of pearls. You would not be in this car with me if you were. But for the most part, it's a golden courtship. She's also jealous to hear gossip about his wife, Rebecca, who was apparently a great beauty and a tremendous sophisticate. A bra full of sophistication, let's put it that way. <laughs> and she was a sort of gregarious life of the party type of person. But anyway, never mind. Mr. De Winter kisses her and asks her to call him Maxim. She's bringing him back to life. Why, his heart had been empty for so long, he was worried a spirit of Halloween was going to lease it out. <laughs> but... Let's not forget, listeners, that she's hanging out with her boyfriend on the company dime. She still has to check in with Mrs. Van Hopper, to whom she lies. And she says, oh, I've uh, <laughs> been spending all my days taking uh, tennis lessons, you know, to be a better lady's companion to her. And Mrs. Van Hopper's like, great, because your tennis game isn't for shit. Mm -hmm. 
So the narrator feels miserable whenever she has to return to their room. And as soon as Mrs. Van Hopper recovers, she decides she's bored of Europe and we're leaving immediately for New York. The narrator is devastated. Will she ever see Maxim again? She realizes in this moment that she's in love with him, and this is probably her one big shot at romance, thought every 21-year-old ever. And they're right, aren't they? That's a thing. <laughs> so with only a very small window to say goodbye before the boat leaves, the narrator rushes to Maxim's room and breaks the news. Goodbye forever. Thanks for all the road trips. And he's a little bit of a cool customer and even takes out an emery board and starts filing his nails, which That's is cool. a yeah. very cutty move. I was going to say bowler. <laughs> All the genitals. He sort of asks her, hey, uh, narrator, would you rather go to New York with Peg Bundy over there? Or um, would you like to go to Mandalay with me? And she's like, what? As your secretary or something? And he says, quote, no, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Nice. Romantic. <laughs> Neg her right yeah, to the altar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's actually a bit of a prick in this scene. He kind of laughs at her and makes her uncertain if it's all a joke. And in all of this, never even mentions that he loves her. So I kind of thought that this was akin to the Rochester dressed up as the fortune teller moment of mm. like trying to work the person up into a romantic and anxious... Love bombing. Yes, but like love bombing but... and negging kind of flipping from one to yeah. the other. There are also some slightly dodgy age dynamics here because he says quite clearly that he's old enough to be her father and he laughs at her more childish moments and then says things like, it's a pity you have to grow up. So the narrator is really dazed by all of this and she starts mentally doodling her name and big bubble letters and practicing her new signature. And she does have this really funny moment thinking about tending to all of her new serfs and <laughs> bringing them soup and having them say, the Lord bless you, madam. And so Maxim kind of has to snap his fingers in front of her face a few times. And he's like, what, are we getting married? Yes. Okay, I'll go break the news to Mrs. Van Hopper. Particles. Duh, Van. What's your favorite particle? I suppose with a name like yours, it would have to be duh, wouldn't it? Or la. Ooh, could you start calling me La Boucher like I'm an opera singer? La Boucher is not ready for you yet. Stay away from La Boucher. Could no flash photographs around La Boucher. She will not have it. She will not sing tonight. Maxim tells Mrs. Van Hopper the news. She's nice to his face, but then as soon as she's alone with the narrator, the knives come out. He's only marrying you. This is mean, isn't it? He's only marrying you as a rebound. And this, you know, all of these horrible remarks, they play right into the narrator's insecurities. So she's like, bye, you old bitch. Don't let the door hit you. With a good lord, did split you. So... That is an Americanism that came so naturally to you. I am so proud. It was like talking to my dad. What's the split? Hit you on the ass. All right. Is that what split means? Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Yeah. It means it means your bottom. Body. Your, your yeah. body. All right. Okay. So the narrator and Maxim, they kind of get married off screen, don't they? We don't see that happen. A few months later, they're arriving at Mandalay which is in the West Country, isn't it? Although they don't explicitly state which county, but let's assume for the purposes of accents that it's Cornwall. Yeah, the narrator's terrified, especially when there's a big formal welcome from all the servants. They're all out there, and it's been led by one Mrs. Danvers, the formidable housekeeper with, this. I love this quote, a skull's face, parchment white, set on a skeleton's frame. 
Like all people, I suppose. Are <laughs> We're all on the skeleton's frame, aren't we? Yeah, she sort of looks like the person who knows the exact minute you're gonna die. Ooh, that's scary, yeah. Mrs. Danvers is showing our narrator, the second Mrs. De Winter, her rooms. Mr. De Winter requested that you now sleep in one of the guest rooms instead of the old main bedroom. You know, where he used to sleep with his first wife. <laughs> Mrs. Danvers gives the impression that Rebecca was perfect in every conceivable way. Practically perfect. <laughs> oh, the parties she used to throw. Oh, and what do you mean you don't have a lady's maid? We'll have to hire one. So the narrator feels she's been kind of like put down, hasn't she, by Mrs. Danvers. It's not an auspicious beginning. Anyway, welcome to your normal house where Rebecca isn't here. She isn't gone, but rather a secret third thing. So over the next few days, the narrator really feels like a fish out of water and makes a bunch of faux pas in front of the servants. And she just gets... She vomits all over them, doesn't she? She does not. Okay, carry on. I was trying to extemporize. Oh, yeah, sorry. You were uh, you expected me to yes and you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then she did a giant poo on the bougainvillea. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, and then... Uh, yeah. Yes and me, Daniel. Make it bigger. Let's go. And the bougainvillea grew as tall as... The- the sky and then it threw up on her and then she threw back up on it what do you want from me (laughs) go then keep going sorry sorry and she gets really overwhelmed by all of the tight schedules that she doesn't know and all the rules that go on said and she just kind of runs around squeaking question marks at people not questions, just question marks, like really. Like Tintin does. Yes! Quite a 1930s thing, maybe, yeah. <laughs> She's also overwhelmed by the general opulence and abundance of food, and I've included a good breakfast spread for Daniel here. They okay. love talking about food in this book. It's a very foodie book. There's, there's a sense that people are hungry for things, but never eating, never satiating themselves. Well, I thought it was also like going through the motions of being a posh home meant that you just have these huge breakfasts when you don't even necessarily want it. It's, it's many like so th- formal, isn't it? It's many things. You can read a lot into yeah. this. So for breakfast, despite her and Maxim eating very little themselves, the servants have laid out scrambled and boiled eggs, hot bacon, cold bacon, fish, porridge, ham, scones, toast, fruit, jams, marmalades, and honeys. Ooh. And she gets very concerned about where all the wasted food goes. And she's especially concerned that everything here was Rebecca's first. Oh, these are Rebecca's cushions, and Rebecca's dogs, and Rebecca's air fryers, <laughs> and Rebecca's tampons. Maxim's sister Beatrice and her kind of dorky husband drop in for a surprise visit when Maxim is out one day. I like day. Beatrice. Sorry to interrupt, I like Beatrice. Oh, I, everyone likes Coursey Beatrice. Beatrice. But like, that's, I, when I'm reading books about the, the 30s and about posh people, I want a character to be like, oh, I've never read a book myself. I'm only into horses and horse flesh and things like that. So our narrator panics and can't bear to be introduced to them without Maxim. So she does something very relatable, which is flee up the servant's back staircase and hide so no one can find her. I mean, I I thought that bit was really funny. I think we've all done that to some extent. I've run up the servant's (laughs) staircase. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean like diving behind a couch or something. Oh, okay, right, yeah. The narrator gets so lost in her huge house that she beauty and the beasts her way up to the (laughs) mysterious West Wing. Eventually, she finds a beautiful bedroom overlooking the sea, and Mrs. Danvers glides in silently and catches her there. 
She's sort of evil Jeeves. Can somebody put a bell on Danvers, please? On all fictional servants from the 30s, <laughs> I think. They're always just gliding around, aren't they? And Danvers says... Would Madam like the room opened up? Oh, sorry. I need to do a Cornish accent. Do what you like. I feel like I'm slightly being the Lucy to your Charlie Brown with the football, but I I think I am going to just do normal. So Danvers says, would Madam like the room opened up? Would Madam like a tour of the house? Madam only has to ask me and I will accompany Madam. So the narrator is treated like she's this naughty child who can't be left on her own. And I'm just like... Will you let her explore her own damn house? She's never going to find that Narnia wardrobe with you hovering. So Mrs. Danvers escorts our narrator back to Maxim's waiting sister. So the sister's quite nice. She's a Tweety Posh type, as we said. She's always talking about dogs, hunting, hearty outdoor exercise. Her husband's really nice too, but he's the sort of dweeb who says shit like okie-dokie artichokey. Like, he, that's his right. vibe. Maxim's sister, she's like, oh, I've noticed Maxim's looking a lot better lately. Six months ago, he was a very ill-looking wreck, so thank God for you, new wife. (laughs) Beatrice is a very frank talker. She says the narrator isn't at all how Maxim described her in his letters. And she's like, you're practically a child. Everyone expected some bright party girl, but isn't it a relief that you're not like that? So this whole encounter makes our narrator even less sure about what her husband thinks of her. Does he want some glamazon socialite? Glamazon. Is that his type? So the sister also susses out the Danvers situation. She's a weird woman. Maybe give her a wide berth. She adored Rebecca, you see. Maybe in a queer reading way. I don't know. People say that, don't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the narrator and Maxim, they go for a walk later. They get near the beach and the dog runs away and gets lost. So Maxim's like, oh, don't worry, the dog will be fine. He'll make his own way back. Clearly, Maxim doesn't want to go down to the area where his first wife died. And the narrator kind of isn't getting it. I'm like, stop pressuring him to go down to the beach. You're triggering his latent schooner trauma. But the narrator won't hear of it. So she runs off to find the dog. The tide's coming in all that stuff she runs into this weird old man ben he's a bit touched in the head isn't he oh bit touched in the head yeah he's a lovable village smoking. <laughs> he's digging for seashells anyway and he keeps talking about how he recognizes the dog from the big house and how she won't come round no more because she's gone into the sea who's this she then obviously what a mystery yeah The narrator sees this nearby boathouse and goes in there to find a bit of rope or something to lead the dog. And to her surprise, the boathouse has actually been furnished up like a proper house. (laughs) Lay it on a bit thicker there, Daniel. Like, you're just, you're not, you're not giving me anything. There's this really big bed in there. There's a mirror above the bed. (laughs) Stuff like that. It's one of those sorts of places. Um, So... It, the house has clearly hasn't been used in a long time. There's cobwebs on the mirror, things like that. <laughs> okay, can we just talk about why people put mirrors over the bed? I get it's a sex thing. What? No, that's what I was alluding to. <laughs> yeah. I saw it on a TV program about... Um... A TV program called Porn. <laughs> you are the mirror in porn, aren't you? You need the mirror. No, it was um, about... First guy to say f*** on the TV. Kenneth Tynan. Anyway... What is this place? Is it Maxim's man cave or something? <laughs> Surely the whole house is his man cave. I don't know. Anarita gets back with the dog. The dog's fine if people are interested. Maxim's annoyed and they have a bit of a fight, don't they? They have their first lover's tiff. 
He's clearly got some kind of PTSD or something about going near the beach or the boathouse, but he doesn't communicate very well with her. Things are okay until she finds one of Rebecca's used handkerchiefs in a coat pocket. It still has lipstick and perfume on it and everything. God, even Rebecca's bogeys are beautiful. <laughs> yeah, God, you see these things. Rebecca's becoming a real pain in her beehole. So the awkward narrator tries to fit in with Maxim's wealthy social circle, and she just keeps hearing about how spiffing everything during Rebecca's reign was. So our narrator is... She's a Marianne in a world of Thurston Howell the Thirds. That's a joke for the kids. All the kids in 1965. That's a Gilligan's Island reference. Right. I'm vaguely aware of that. So the narrator, she just becomes more anxious and insecure, and she even comes to hate the restless sea where Rebecca died. So good thing you live in Cornwall, dummy. After a flurry of social calls, the narrator gets really tired of being asked about reviving the famous Manderley costume ball. Oh, the parties Rebecca used to throw, all these people say. The food, the mariachi bands, the pony rides. Twister. Chinese New Year's dragons. Rebecca used to throw ass all over the dance floor. Throw up all over the dance floor, yeah. And the narrator decides to do a bit of investigating. So she visits Maxim's land agent, you know, he's sort of Maxim's right-hand man, Frank Crawley, one day. And they've sort of become buddies. And she's like, hey, Frank, you don't seem like some gossipy old bitch. Maybe you can help me resuscitate this party tradition without making me feel really shitty about it. And Frank is very helpful, if a bit reserved, but he seems a little bit troubled about discussing Rebecca. And the narrator thinks, oh god, he was in love with Rebecca too. Everybody is. So the narrator finally asks him about the boathouse, and Frank goes silent. That was Rebecca's special place. And we finally get some details about her death. It turns out Rebecca was brave and fiercely independent, and she loved going for a midnight sail. And one night she got capsized in an unexpected squall in the bay, our poor, adventurous, free-spirited Rebecca. And she was such a proficient sailor, too. No one could handle a boat like Rebecca. How could she have capsized? I guess she girl-bossed too close to the sun. <laughs> They didn't even find her body for two months, and by that point, it had washed almost 50 miles away. And her head was all rotted off, probably. They, they gently allude to the state of her body. Nibbled to pieces. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. Yeah, the pilchards. <laughs> a lot of pilchards in Cornwall, aren't there? You know that? Poor Maxim had to go identify her, which, let me tell you, friend, was not pretty after two months at sea. So the narrator is sick to hear all of this. Oh, what trauma Maxim has been through. And she confides in Frank that she knows everyone's comparing her to Rebecca. And you know what? Maybe she shouldn't have married Maxim after all. He's been distant lately, and he's clearly still in love with his first wife. And I, I kind of wondered, is this ethical non-monogamy? Or is this non-ethical monogamy? There are three people in this marriage, kinda, or not. And I don't know what this is. So who's the third party? Rebecca? Yeah. I thought you meant Frank. <laughs> so we get more scenes of domestic life. The narrator learning the way things had been run in the house under Rebecca's sterling leadership. The narrator, she's just, she's total no mark, right? She just passively goes with it. And that's kind of the wrong move, isn't it? 
The book is very much like, one must take a firm hand with the servants or they won't respect you. That's its vibe, isn't it? So one day, there's a bit of a servant's row. Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, has accused Robert, the footman, of either stealing or breaking and then hiding a very valuable china ornament. Turns out the narrator had broken it, you know, clumsily Mary suing her way around the East Wing, and she just, you know, swept it into a bin and forgot to say anything. Don't touch his everything! Yeah, the hot bacon, valuable. The cold bacon, <laughs> exactly valuable. <laughs> So when this all comes out, the narrator, she gets the sense that Mrs. Danvers knew she had broken it all along and just wanted to torture her into confessing. Thankfully, Maxim is actually charmed by her hiding the broken statue like a naughty child. So he's, he's kind of a reverse Henry Higgins. He wants more gutter snipe, more buffoonery, fewer diamonds, less dancing with the Prince of Transylvania or whoever the hell got the hots for Eliza Doolittle at the ball. You've never seen My Fair Lady? Not all the way through, I don't think. Okay. You'd hate it. The narrator is humiliated all the same, and she wonders why Maxim married her. She's like, did you feel sorry for me or something? Is this a pro bono marriage? <laughs> pro bono. <laughs> That's another thing that there's so... You filthy bugger. Well, there's no sort of talk about their movie sexes. They don't seem... Well, later on, they have a kind of sexual chemistry, don't they? But there's no real... In, in the early days, you're, you are slightly wondering, have you guys had sex? And if they had, ooh, is it tepid? Yeah. It's like a couple of pancakes lying on top of each other. <laughs> oh, you go. no! And this is the famous scene where she says, We are happy, aren't we, Maxim? Terribly happy. And his response is... I'll take your word for it. We are happy. All right, then. That's agreed. God, she takes a lot of sh** in this book. The narrator is a cushion for his bad moods and just absorbs all of his negativity. She's human memory foam. The narrator goes down to the dock and she discovers that Rebecca's boat had been named Je Reviens. Oh yeah, give us that accent. Je reviens, non, <laughs> reviens, reviens. Yeah. yeah, earn that paycheck, Daniel. So, yeah, I return. Ooh, that's inappropriate, isn't it? That's a, I won't make this joke out loud, but it's kind of ironic that she would have a boat called I Return, and then she wouldn't return. Foreshadowing Claxon, please. She runs into Gentle Ben around the boathouse again. Gentle Ben is what I call my fiancé, Ben Barnes. Okay, well... He's you, a real sweetheart. Right, well, I'm not going to say... Gen, it's from The Simpsons, Gentle Ben. Yeah. We had to hit our Simpsons quota for the year, so oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. are well on track. Yes. So, yeah, Gentle Ben's there, and he starts all shaking and begging her not to put him in an asylum, and he's like, I ain't done nothing or said nothing, and the narrator calms him down. She said, she's a bit like, who would have threatened this guy to go to an asylum or so? She kind of wonders who's been saying these things yeah. to Ben, doesn't she? And he's like, oh, you're nice. You've got angel eyes, not the other mean one who looked like a snake. Tall and dark she were. And she used to come here late at night. And whenever she saw me hanging around, she threatened to stick me in the asylum if I said a word. The narrator is a bit too stupid, isn't she? She isn't connecting the dots that this was Rebecca hiding something. The narrator gets home, back to the big house. Not prison, it's just a really big house, isn't it? Um, it's kind of a prison. No, it's not. That's 
not in it. Um, maybe a little bit. <laughs> she she notices that there's this big flashy car and it's been sneakily parked around the side of the house where you can't see it very well. I mean, you can see it because she did, but you can't see it very well. <laughs> and it's a flashy car, so come on. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's like a police car or something, isn't it? Flashing. No, just posh. Stop correcting yourself. <laughs> Thank you for this, by the way. You know that I'm always looking for new things to hate. And you've given me that. This word salad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So she walks around the house to investigate and then stumbles on this man standing outside. He's acting all super shady. And he's talking to Mrs. Danvers, who's leaning out an upstairs window. Hmm, okay. If Mrs. Danvers has a guest, that's none of my business, is it? Maybe he's the repairman or something. <laughs> uh, but it's weird that it's the only day Maxim's away from home, though. Hmm. Later, this man, Jack Favel, Favel, Favel. I said Favel. This man, Jack Favel, he runs into her inside the house, despite Mrs. Danvers very obviously trying to keep them apart, because she doesn't want the narrator to know that he's there. He introduces himself, and she notes, he's a big, hefty fellow, good-looking in a rather flashy, sunburnt way. He's also a bit of a drinker, and he, he likes the sauce. He's a bounder, I'd call him. He's a straight-up bounder. <laughs> There's always one in these 30s novels, isn't there? And he claims he's popped in to see old Danny, who's a good friend of his, and asks after old Max. It was old to you, aren't they? <laughs> um, he's, he's just like way too familiar with our narrator. He lights his cigarette. He teases that he'll stay for tea. He winks at Mrs. Danvers, asking the narrator to come and check out his hot rod. Things like that. Rude. By the way, maybe don't mention to your husband. By the words of the wise, don't mention to your husband that I was here. Hey. He also says that. You know what? I'm smelling. Might be pilchers, might be sardines. Something fishy <laughs> is going on with this Mr. Favel. He finally, very mercifully, leaves, though. This guy is distilled essence of dirtbag. He's the sort of guy who thinks that going to the dog track would be a classy first date. <laughs> You're speaking from experience. So the narrator thinks something funny is up. You know, why is this flashy guy hanging out with Mrs. Danvers? And she's like, I'm going to go poke around the room where I think Mrs. Danvers had been leaning out of the window to talk to Jack Favel. Bit Scooby-Doo. <laughs> So it's back in that wing where she had once been scolded by Mrs. Danvers, where it seems like no one's really supposed to go. So she discovers the room, and it's weirdly tended to, despite this wing being all closed up and nobody using it. It's dusted, there are fresh flowers, there's clean linen, etc. Big box of menstrual things. What is the menstrual undercurrent? You started it! I know. You understand that tampons don't really go off, right? So that's not really helping the case I was making. But she's restocking it. She's taking them away to pretend that they're being used. And then restocking them, Mrs. Danvers is. She's that sick. (laughs) (laughs) This was Rebecca's room. And it's being creepily preserved as though she could waltz back in at any minute. Of course, She's caught by Mrs. Danvers, whose Rebecca senses are tingling, and she is not happy. In response to the narrator trespassing, Danvers turns really sickly sweet and says, Oh, I'll give you a tour, madam. And this is the scene where it becomes apparent that Danvers is actually unhinged and obsessed with Rebecca. Why, Rebecca had the best taste, the brightest laugh, the tallest, shapeliest figure. 
She had a real can on her is what I'm picking up from what everyone said. <laughs> Rebecca was even painted by a famous artist, and it won Picture of the Year and hangs in the Academy to this day. What Danvers didn't tell us is that a portrait was a Mondrian. <laughs> so Danvers has a little bit of a manic breakdown, because she's basically having a complete parasocial relationship with a ghost. Potter's wheel in the corner of Rebecca's room. <laughs> That Righteous Brothers song goes on the jukebox every night. Then it starts to get a bit sad. Danvers talks about the trauma she experienced the night that Rebecca went sailing, and she waited up all night for her to come home. And she's like, you can see why Max doesn't sleep in this room anymore. Not when you can hear the sea. She's still here with us. You feel her presence too, don't you? And then Danvers says, quote, Sometimes I wonder if she comes back to Manderley and watches you and Mr. De Winter together. Looking in that mirror. (laughs) In conclusion, you will never, ever live up to her. Now, the narrator keeps reminding herself, you know, don't listen to Danvers. Comparison is the thief of joy. How do you outdo a drowning? I'm thinking Amelia Earhart. So she decides after all of this, she's like, listen, I'm, I'm not going to tell Maxim about this. I'm not going to tell him about Jack's visit because it's just going to upset him. But Max somehow finds out that Jack had been to the house later. And the narrator overhears him calling Jack on the phone to read him the riot act. Never step foot on my property again. So there's more endless chatter about organizing the big Mandalay costume ball. If you like balls, this is the book for you, I would say. Uh, well, there's one ball. It's kind of like Hitler. Like <laughs> Hitler, damn it. I, oh, um, damn it, we almost jinxed. Yeah. So, Max and the narrator are getting seriously pressured into reviving this big ball. Okay, fine. They begin organizing it, but the narrator panics that she can't think of a good costume idea. She's such a dullard and she's got no ideas for costumes. Max he wants our narrator to go as Alice in Wonderland. Ah, oh, what a creep. Yeah. The narrator, however, is tired of being infantilized. Mrs. Danvers, helpful, dependable, <laughs> loving. Some servants actually love you, don't they? They like respect and love you. She, Mrs. Danvers, is one of them. She comes <laughs> and suggests, since you love art so much, you could go as one of the paintings in Manderley's gallery. Ah. That's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe go as one of Maxim's ancestors. I don't know. Uh, the girl in the white dress with the hat. What a great idea. Go with a white dress and a hat. It's in a painting. I don't need to go anywhere. It's in my house. I live in a massive art gallery, so I don't need to go anywhere <laughs> to be inspired. What a lovely surprise that'll be for Maxim. So our narrator, she goes to a ton of effort to truss herself up like this famous painting. She gets every detail exact. It's not a homemade costume, is it? It's a Borton one. She refuses to tell Maxim what this costume idea is. The party's about to start, and the narrator gets ready to make our big entrance to Maxim and their in-laws before all the rest of the guests arrive. Rests of the guests. She, I actually, she actually feels pretty for once. I actually feel good in me. <laughs> I feel special. She goes in. Everyone falls silent and just stares. So it went down really well, I think. (laughs) No. Maxim's like, what the bleeding heck, and I don't mean to say f**k, are you doing? (laughs) Go change now. You're not an aristocrat. My culture is not your costume. Appropriation, you're right, yeah. (laughs) The narrator is in tears, 
What, you know, what did I do wrong? I'm just like a painting in the gallery. There's nothing wrong with that. No one will explain to her what horrific faux pas she's made. And Max basically screams at her. So she runs off in tears. And you know what? Mrs. Danvers is there. And she's smiling at her in an evil way. See? Long story short, she finds out that this was the exact costume Rebecca had worn to the last ball. Because both she and Rebecca got the details so exact, it's kind of a bit like they've seen a ghost, isn't it? You look like you've seen a ghost. Because it kind of is like I've seen a ghost. That's what's going on there. It could be the ghost of the ancestor, too. How mad would that ancestor spirit be of, like... That's interesting, though, isn't it? That you have these layers upon layers yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. Yeah, you'd be pretty miffed at it. I've been upstaged by a successor, <laughs> you know, as well. Rebecca's upstaging everyone. So she goes and changes this narrator character person, and the rest of the party goes down all right. But Maxim doesn't come to bed that night. Oh, yeah. He's sleeping on that couch. Maxim disappears the next day, and his sister explains that he thinks she dressed like Rebecca deliberately as a mean joke. Why would he think this, though? He knows her to not be cruel. She clearly was distressed going, what did I do wrong? I'm just dressed like the painting that I see in the gallery every day. I thought, you know, you'd be surprised as one of your ancestors. It's so clearly... An accident. Come on. The narrator can't find Maxim to explain. But she can find Mrs. Danvers. I'll give her the what for. So the narrator goes, How could you, Danvers? I would have been your friend, but you've hated me from the start. I vowed to get my revenge on you when you told Maxim about Jack coming to visit. Jack's my only living connection to Rebecca. So the narrator swears up and down that she never told about Jack coming to the house, but Mrs. Danvers doesn't believe her. And the narrator starts to piece together from things Mrs. Danvers has said that, you know what? Rebecca might have been playing away. Anyway, narrator, you triple suck, and why don't you just leave Mandalay? In fact, why don't you jump out the window? Go on, then your problems will be over. Just jump. And... Mrs. Danvers almost, like, hypnotizes the narrator a little bit. It's a scary bit. It's, yeah, it's maybe the most tense bit in the novel. And the narrator's actually just about to give in when all of a sudden, there's a huge crash. A ship has run aground in the bay. And all of a sudden, it's all hands on deck in the house. And everyone in the neighborhood is trying to rescue it. So there's all this chaos. But the narrator gets a visit from one of the men overseeing the rescue operation. And he has some rough news for Maxim, but Maxim's not there. So he's like to the narrator, well, we sent a diver down and we found another boat. (gasps) Rebecca's boat, still intact. Je reviens. Je... reviens. It's like, will, isn't it? I will return. Anyway, worse still... We searched it and found a body on board. A body? A body. But we know it's not Rebecca, right? Because Max had already identified her corpse when it washed ashore. So this means Rebecca wasn't alone. Was she cheating on him? It wasn't Jack. Who is this mystery man? Eventually, when Maxim is told, he gets even more broody than normal. He really wants those babies. Um, (laughs) Rebecca won. Don't you see? Her shadow has come between us. The narrator thinks that this is him admitting that he loved Rebecca best after all, but no. Listen, love, you better sit down. 
Now, keep in mind that this whole book, the narrator keeps wishing that her husband would open up to her, communicate with her. So this is the moment where we see that monkey's paw curling in. Yeah, it's exactly, yeah. So, the body on board is Rebecca. Maxim says, she was alone on the boat, and I know this because it was I who shot her in the boathouse. Maxim in the boathouse with the shotgun. Very good. I shot her in the boathouse, carried her aboard her boat, and then, you know, scuttled it, and then, like, kind of dived in the water and... No, he didn't, did he? Get a little, there was a little dinghy. We could imagine him maybe like a pirate putting a knife between his teeth and swan diving in. That's a yeah, cool image. And the boat explodes. Well, oh, that's Michael Bay. Get us on the phone. I like, want Michael Bay's Rebecca. Yeah. No, he just broke some holes in the bottom of the ship or whatever as you do. Pulled the cork out, didn't he? <laughs> um, later on, I just identified some random faceless drowned body so I could just close down the ordeal and have her finally declared dead. All the while, however, I knew that her body was very secretly, securely hidden in this scuttled ship. I got away with the murder for this long, but not anymore. But you don't love me now. Yeah, careful, Max. She's going to find out you're not out of her league. And then how will you intimidate her into loving you? Ooh, very good point. So the narrator at this bombshell goes into full dissociative shock. Death of a bombshell, isn't it? (laughs) So this is the point where Maxim finally tells her that he loves her and begins kissing her passionately like she's been hoping he'd do this whole time. That's why he's been so grumpy, so distant. He's been terrified, nearly to the brink of madness, that someone would find out. You thought I loved Rebecca? I hated her, I tell you. Our marriage was a farce from the very first. She was vicious, damnable, rotten through and through. We never loved each other, never had one moment of happiness together. Rebecca was incapable of love, of tenderness, of decency. She was not even normal. This is why I love you, narrator. You're not some sort of devious, worldly sophisticate. You're a baby bird, scarcely out of your shell. You're my tabula rasa wife. So why didn't he just leave her? Well, Maxim says he has limited options. He couldn't divorce Rebecca, and he couldn't reveal her infidelities or cruelties, because that's just not what their set do. Why, they'd both be destroyed by it. No one would ever speak to them again. Isn't it also like, I don't mind me getting my name dragged through the muck, but Mandalay. He's always going on about that, isn't he? Yeah, it's not just him, it's the whole family, Mm. his sister, the estate, the the, the shame of it would have destroyed him. So he had to suffer in silence, and he basically shut down entirely for years. I love this book because it asks, what if class were a sensory deprivation tank? (laughs) Anyway, it just kept getting worse. Rebecca started f***ing everyone, man after man after man. She was a bloody clown car in reverse! (laughs) She even tried to seduce poor Frank, the meek land agent, but he just barely managed to resist her, and then he came to Maxim begging for a different job. Send me away, Maxim. I cannot be near a sexual puma like this. Apparently, Rebecca even tried it on with Maxim's sister's dopey husband, just because she could. She loved taking men to the boathouse, and now the narrator understands why poor old Ben, who likes to dig for shells around there, said... Oh, I'll never tattle. Please don't put me in an asylum. So Max finally got fed up one day, and he's like, I know she's down at the boathouse with Jack. I'm going to take a shotgun down there to scare him off, like just make a show of force. 
I know, I know, don't bring a gun unless you're planning to use it. Did he plan to use it? He claims it's just to scare him. We don't know. So Maxim goes to the boathouse, but Rebecca's alone. Huh. She taunts him mercilessly and reveals she's pregnant with someone's baby. Lord knows whose. It's sure not your kid, honey tits, but good luck proving it. And when you die one day, your beloved Manderly will go to someone else's bastard. Maybe he'll learn to love the kid. Yeah, that'd be the big joke on Rebecca, wouldn't it? Be like, oh, I never wanted a kid of my own, but I'm really happy to raise yours. Alcoholism runs in my family, actually. This is the best, you know. Yeah. Do we think Rebecca and Maxim had ever um, bumped Douglas? Oh, yeah. I don't think you could hate someone this much without having loved them that, a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I think also, as a sexual puma, I'm sure she's like, I need to know all your weaknesses. I need to know uh, how to shame you. Yeah, yeah. I need to know that you can't resist me. That's why you're so drained of strength. Yeah. Possibly, She's like yeah. a vampire. Carry See, on. I fully understand Rebecca because I am also a sexual puma <laughs> and game recognizes game. Okay. Before he knows what he's done, Maxim realizes he's shot her. Quote, I'd forgotten that when you shoot a person, there was so much blood. So he's there alone. No one's seen him. He cleans up the boathouse, and then he stages the boat sinking with her body trapped on board. Now, having confessed all of this, this seems like the big barrier between Maxim and the narrator has finally broken down. Oh, but how long do they have together before he's arrested for Rebecca's murder? Oh God, if only I'd never told you. If only we could have gone back to the continent where our love was in metric. Mm -hmm. So the narrator comes into her own now, doesn't she? She's like, here's the plan, dummy. Ooh, gangster's mall. She turns into a mall, yeah. So here's what you do. You say... The body you identified was a mistake when you were overcome with grief. No one saw you at the boathouse. Everyone thought you had the perfect marriage. We'll just brazen our way out of it. After calming Maxim down, the narrator also finally grows a pair when it comes to Mrs. Danvers. She says, you know what? I don't want cold cuts or something. I want a really, really hot cut. (laughs) Put that pepperoni in the microwave, Damn it. Exactly, yeah. And Mrs. Danvers is all like, but Mrs. De Winter, whatever. And then it's like, I ain't Mrs. De Winter. That don't concern me. Well, this is an actual quotation, so read it properly. I'm afraid it does not concern me very much what Mrs. De Winter used to do. I am Mrs. De Winter now. Read it real, please. I'm afraid it does not concern me very much. You can put a little jazz in. I'm afraid it does not concern me very much what Mrs. De Winter used to do. I am Mrs. De Winter now. That's what she says. Breakfast of hard truths for Danny. (laughs) So, everything goes according to the narrator's plan. And though there is going to be an inquest, everyone thinks Maxim had just, you know, he just saw a a waterlogged corpse. He just made an honest mistake. (laughs) One looks the same as another, doesn't it? That doesn't stop the press from being a little bit intrusive the media becomes desperate for this story they're they're really gross about it it's like a black friday sale and maxim is the only 20 dollars big screen tv in the store they're they're kind of hounded and this compounds all the idea of like servants you know surveilling them or the social circle surveilling them now we got the media the on top of it pages yeah so the inquest starts and there's a bit of trouble do you want to know what that is I'll tell you. <laughs> they have an expert in, don't they? I like this bit. I really like the court case bit, the coroner's court. They have the guy that made the boat, and he's like, that boat didn't crash into no rocks. I inspected it, and it was deliberately sunk. 
Peas and carrots, peas and carrots. Yeah, exactly. Maxim is questioned, and he's just his old surly self. Not good with this coroner, because this coroner likes very polite uh, witnesses. What do you have in coroner's court? The narrator, she's sitting in the viewing gallery, seeing him lose his temper with this questioning coroner, and she starts panicking. He's going to put his foot in it and say something incriminating. You know, we can get wound up easily. I'll just bring a shotgun to the coroner's court just to scare the coroner. Um, So she also sees Jack and Mrs. Danvers. They're sitting together. What are they up to? Narrator starts a commotion in the court by fainting. She swings. This is enough to snap Maxim back to his senses and help him keep his temper. He pulls through the questioning and the court starts to think it's a suicide. Suicide by boat. I, I like what his sister Beatrice asks the narrator when she's like, you fainted. You're not starting an infant, are you? And I was like, what a phrase. <laughs> oh my God, there was that really funny bit where Beatrice is like, it's so embarrassing for Maxim that Rebecca committed suicide. Can't we say that a communist destroyed the boat? <laughs> and the narrator's all like, I don't think communists are going to be destroying people's boats. So The inquest seems more or less to be wrapping up. They think Rebecca committed suicide by sinking her own ship. Phew, that's a bit of a relief. Only not everyone thinks that. Jack Favell pays a call on the narrator. He's leering and disgusting. He harasses the servants, gets drunk, hits on the narrator, and implies that maybe she's screwing Frank. Maxim comes home and is pretty furious to see Jack there. And Jack airs his true reason for coming. Blackmail. See, the thing is, old chum, Rebecca left me a note hours before she died, saying she needed to see me. Would someone about to commit suicide do that? People do leave notes. <laughs> yeah, no. It's about the content of the note, though, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. You know, and he's very like, Max, baby. Sorry, I don't know why I turned him into Ellis on Die Hard, but uh, yeah, baby, pay my gambling debts or I go to the magistrate. Not the magistrate. Maxim does him one better. Oh, oh, you want to call the magistrate, do you? Well, let's call him together, right now, shall we? And Jack's a bit like, ooh, (laughs) this is getting (laughs) out of my control (laughs) immediately. So the magistrate arrives, and Jack explains, I think Maxim murdered Rebecca. But Jack is drunk by this point. He sounds crazy. The magistrate's a bit like, didn't I see you at the inquest today? Why not raise your evidence there if you think there's been foul play? Oh, you were blackmailing Maxim, is it? Oh, things are becoming a lot clearer. Favel thinks he can prove that it was murder by bringing in a witness. You know, that old Ben was always hanging around. Gentle Ben. I bet he saw Maxim go to and from the boathouse that night. So they round up Ben. This turn, we're really going to shorten this. This turns into a very long like procedural of hunting down witnesses and evidence. It's a really good bit. I, I knew everything about the end of this book, despite never having read it. This bit still had me oh, it's, on the tenterhooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They bring old Ben in once they finally find him. But he has been so traumatized by Rebecca's previous abuse that all he can repeat is that, I never saw nothing, please don't send me away to an asylum, and that's all they can get out of him. Okay, Jack panics. <laughs> that didn't work. Let's bring in another witness. Mrs. Danvers, tell them, Danny, Rebecca and I were in love and she was going to leave Maxim for me and that's why he killed her. Now this starts the narrator and Maxim sweating a bit. But 
Mrs. Danvers is surprisingly resistant, whether that's to protect Rebecca's reputation or because Mrs. Danvers is a bit delusional, we don't know. Or jealous, I kind of thought. Jealous of Favel. Oh, yeah, that's another possibility. She basically says, you know what? Rebecca despised all men. She only messed around with them as a game, and she laughed at all of you behind your backs. I was the only one she really loved and trusted. The thing that I love about this scene is that every trap Jack Favel lays explodes hilariously in his face. He's Looney Tunesing a murder investigation. This is some wily coyote bullshit. The magistrate guy, Colonel Julian, he realizes that Favel is just a bullshit, but also that maybe there is more to this whole case than meets the eye. So they get Mrs. Danvers to, you know, help them piece together the events of Rebecca's last day. So Mrs. Danvers gets Rebecca's diary and they, they see that she'd gone to some doctor in London and the narrator's like, oh, dash it all. This is going to confirm the pregnancy and Maxim's motive for killing her. Max, we're rumbled, Max. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Very long story short, we're entering Endgame. God damn it, Daniel. They take a big drive up to London. They meet the London doctor. They find out that Rebecca had... Cancer. Oh, I thought you were going to say puppies. She was having puppies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, like the omen or something. Like the opposite <laughs> of the omen. So Mrs. Danvers said that, you know, Rebecca's biggest fear, and the, her only fear, really, had always been illness and a slow death. Because she was like a sort of ubermensch type, wasn't she? She always said, like, I am pure will. I am pure strength. I don't like the thought of being cut down by disease. Yeah, if she's going to go, she's going to go fast and young and beautiful. She's and not... furious. Yeah. Is that why you call me a creature of pure will all the time? Do you think I'm a fascist? Oh, no, it was just a joke. I don't control the railroads or the flow of commerce. Anyway, so to everyone else, this confirms the suicide by drowning story. She knew she was going to die a slow death, so spirited Rebecca went out that night, and she only gone and sunk her own boat... <laughs> To Maxim and the narrator, it was Rebecca's final game. (laughs) (laughs) Suicide by Maxim. So, this is the plan, if you believe it. Uh, Provoke Maxim into shooting her, and then torture him by making him live with the guilt and the fear of discovery. What a laugh. And just in case you're wondering if she really also maybe was with child, the doctor said, oh, by the way, she had a malformed uterus. Her uterus was f***ed up. She wasn't a real woman. She could never have kids. Phew. She was just some kind of weird sex monster. The, this is the one detail of the book that I actually truly hate because, yeah, it's it's conflating womanhood with yeah, yeah, motherhood yeah, yeah, yeah. and sort of sexual appetites as being anathema to that. And, like, you can be a horrible person without them sort of punishing her by saying like well she wasn't a real woman oh well it's quite a sexist story isn't it i'm sure we all uh, yeah we're gonna yeah so favel is a bit shaken by this <laughs> i love this sorry yeah, this is a funny <laughs> bit keep going favel is a bit shaken by this news but he kind of accepts it now and all he asks is if they think cancer is contagious i mean i had sex with rebecca a lot I'm probably patient zero for a new, rare, contagious sex cancer. And I'm like, okay, Michael Douglas, calm down. You're not a Tasmanian devil. Does the Tasmanian devil have sex a lot? No, they have contagious cancer. Cancer. 
It's terrible. <laughs> Is that what was wrong with that guy? <laughs> okay. So, Colonel Julian, the magistrate, is like, Well, chaps, I have all the information I need. This is officially a suicide. Of course Rebecca scuttled her own boat. And with no blackmail now to be had, Jack Favell runs off. Jack runs off and calls Mrs. Danvers to let her know that Rebecca had cancer and Rebecca never confided in her about it. So they drive home from London very late that night and the narrator falls asleep in the car and has a nightmare that she's Rebecca. You know, she's brushing her hair, she's putting on makeup, but when she looks in the mirror, it's Rebecca staring back at her. And so she wakes up in a shock. And Max is like, oh, don't worry, we're, we're close to home. And she's like, oh, what time is it? Is it dawn? It looks like the sun is rising. But it's only 2 a.m. My God, that huge glow on the horizon? That's not the sun. It's Manderley. Quote, and the ashes blew toward us with the salt wind from the sea. And those are the last lines of the novel. So without saying it explicitly, the audiences led to believe that maybe Mrs. Danvers, maybe Jack, maybe both burned down Manderley in revenge. The end. Ooh. So... Would you like some casting? Sure would. When I was reading this, and you become aware of that spirit of Rebecca floating through, but you never see her, I kept thinking this is the Rebecca leitmotif. And I thought this would make a great MGM musical from the early 60s. You'd have some great villain songs, because Max is kind of villainous at the beginning. You have Jack, you have Danvers, you have Mrs. Van Hopper. There will be a lot of rousing group numbers and dance scenes because you have Monte Carlo, the ball, the servants, the media, the court case. I want Debbie Reynolds as the narrator because she has that youthful girl next door. Which one is she again? She was singing in the rain. Oh, yeah, yeah. The main character. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Marlon Brando as Maxim. Oh, Maxim. (laughs) I don't want to... That's before, Don't ask me about my first wife. That uh, that was a little bit before he got into that phase of his life. Back okay. when he's still. I could have been a contender. Hey, don't was, ask me about my first wife. I was, like that. I was thinking more when he was in Guys and Dolls because he has musical cred. I can sing a song. <laughs> Not brilliantly. Dooby dooby doo. Like that. Gloria Swanson as Mrs. Danvers. Which one's she? Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Okay. Someone trapped in the past. And we need somebody hot but slimy as Jack. I was thinking Frank Sinatra. Doobie dooby doo. Doobie dooby doo. Doobie dooby don't. <laughs> and even as the sister's dorky husband, throw Danny Kay in there. Uh, Come on, uh, he'd be a good one to And who's th- Beatrice then? Oh, I didn't think oh, that far. Okay. Oh. You thought about the Giles, but you didn't think about Beatrice. <laughs> crazy rosemary clooney as beatrice who's she george clooney's aunt she was in white christmas i haven't seen that okay sounds good though yeah sounds that, like a good i would watch that i think that sounds yeah. like a really solid bit of casting yeah yeah and now for our segment bad goodreads reviews and before we start i have to say i have very few of these today because all of the bad goodreads were actually pretty legitimate grievances they hated Maxim for being a murderer, and they hated the main character for being a bit of a dope. So, 
I'm sorry, this is all I got for you guys. I feel lied to. I feel betrayed by the high ratings. I feel rage and just a hint gassy. <laughs> I feel like throwing this book into a dumpster fire. One star. Ma'am, I'm sorry for your intestinal distress, but maybe that's not the fault of the book. All right, let's do some analysis. So you wanted to start with form, as we always do. Very good place to start. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not necessarily, though. The dialectic of form and content means that both are equally valid places to start. Discuss. Daniel, no, we're not talking about that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, narrator constantly kind of returning to the present and then going back to the story. What do you think of that? Yeah, so this story starts at the end and it's all her remembering and mm. she's constantly interjecting from the present day, talking about how upsetting or how great the past was. And I just thought it was this constant jostling of past mm. and present we get that she's living in the past, Max has been living in the past, Danvers is living in the past, and the spirit of Rebecca is living on in a sort of different way. I suppose that's the kind of speaks to not just the specific motif of Rebecca haunting them, but also the kind of psychological trauma yeah. and all that sort of stuff going through it, isn't it? Yeah. It feels like nobody is ever fully living in the present. Mm. And Rebecca was such a vivacious character, only she lived in the present. She took the present from everyone almost. But also the narrator, um, she's like a very strong narrator, isn't she? In that... She has a really strong yeah. voice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Not as a character, but as a voice. You know, all these interjections of her daydreaming or thinking backwards or forwards. Like, there are subtle differences in the modern day bit where she's a little bit stronger, but she's still the same person. Mm. And I was just so impressed with the writing style. I didn't even really think about this, but you're right. that Even just from a technical perspective, it's hard to do that shifting through time in that mm -hmm. way. Dumaria does it yeah. with such ease and you're right that is a real technical feat for us to not get all confused and be like because yeah I mean in many ways it's just kind of obvious isn't it? it's just like oh Maxim said that if only I knew then and stuff yeah. like that I can't it's better than that obviously yeah. but the point is is it's there are many ways they're very obvious devices but they work in a really effective mm -hmm. way the book has a great ear for banality doesn't it oh so many stupid shallow characters in this. Yeah, definitely. But that's the strange thing, that the narration itself is like super poetical, isn't it? And it has loads of pathetic fallacy, especially mm -hmm. about the climate, like really lovely stuff about uh, the weather. But then, then the actual dialogue, they have all this just empty chatter, especially about the weather. Mm -hmm. They will just go clearing up, paint it, and things like that. That sort of imbalance, but is really good. The, the, the supreme banality of these characters is really good. Well, well, that's where another place where you can see Daphne du Maurier's skill, because she's like, listen, I can really write, and I can write poetically and beautifully and absorb you into this world, and then I can also capture other people's voices, and boy, do you know stupid people mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. And the fact that she can write on all these different registers and have them blend so seamlessly. Yeah. Much like with the actual character of Rebecca, who menaces us because we can only paint the space around mm. her, the dialogue itself, they're not saying what they want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're saying stuff around what they're trying to say, and that makes it uncomfortable. And yeah, there's a menace in that too of we don't talk about this, but we have a lot of issues with each other and a lot of repressed things, and we're going to speak around it and aggressively yeah. not address this. England. <laughs> you quite. Yeah. I, I feel like I know you a little bit better after having read this book. <laughs> Agatha Christie, Evelyn Waugh, Daphne du Maurier, The Mitfords, P.G. Woodhouse, they all just have these same 1930s country house social types. 
like Favel, Colonel Julian, Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. They're all such recurring types. And on paper, that makes them seem really conventional. But that, like, that final scene in the library with them all fighting and Favel being like, I'm going to black wheel you, I'm a bounder and stuff. Mm-hmm. That was still like so well executed and compelling, despite it seeming like obviously like something you'd get in Agatha Christie or something. She breathed a certain life into Christie. And this is no shade on Christie. Christie was very good at what she did. But I know that there was a scholar who talked about Christie's plots and characters as animated algebra. And it feels like Demoria took all of that and really breathed life into everyone here. Their stockness becomes like a psychological mm-hmm. defense mechanism. And- a lot of people on Bad Goodreads really hated this because of the stubbornness or stockness of the characters. They thought people were really stupid, and they hated the pacing. I thought this was a thrilling book, but it's a slow burn. It's about mm. dread. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. about dread that doesn't come all at once, and that's the thing that makes it scarier, is that every day there's a little bit something more wrong, yeah. or something that you're you're more aware of as wrong, until it all boils over. I'm surprised that it built up to the climax as quickly as it did. I kind of thought, yeah. I thought that Mrs. Danvers' torture would, in fact, I should say this, I thought Mrs. Danvers was going to be in a lot more, and I thought she would torture our narrator a lot more than she did. I thought she was a lot more central to the book, because I'd read this once before, and her presence is so big that in my memory, much like the narrator, I'm remembering her as way more central. She's actually only in a handful of scenes. Mm. Can we talk about this being a rewriting of Jane Eyre? Because that was another complaint people had on Bad Goodreads, where they're like, Jane Eyre much? Daphne du Maurier? And I'm like, yeah, there's. it follows a lot of the same, you know, the dark, sexually rapacious, wealthy wife who's there but not there, yeah, haunting yeah. the house, the you know the servants who are kind of in on certain things, the husband who emotionally abuses, the fairer, younger wife who's socially inferior, and then the house burns down at the end, and the man is kind of traumatized by it, and the wife takes charge. It's, it is a retelling, but... What's wrong with that, then? But it also... Okay, go on makes it into its own thing entirely. Very much so, yeah. I mean, Du Maurier was really aware of gothic traditions and sensationalist traditions, and is this any worse than doing a rewriting of Jane Eyre like Jean Rhys did with Wide Sargasso OC? Well, that was the thing I was going to say. That opening bit with Mandalay being described and all the foliage consuming it, I was like, Jean Rhys, you've ripped this right off. No, I think you're right. Also, I mean, that both stories are kind of bluebeard stories, aren't they, in some ways? No, so yeah, of course, all these stories are like that, aren't they? That's, that's all part of it, about rewriting. Were those same people that reviewed this going to, like, Macbeth and being like, uh, Holland Shares Chronicles, anyone? <laughs> Come on. You were talking about how this had a lot of elements of turn of the screw as well, this idea of, is it a haunting or is it psychosis? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. But that sort of sexual repression, the sexual psychosis, the unavailable master of the house. This book has a lot of references to other gothic texts, of, of which Jane Eyre is, of course, the biggest, but there are a lot of others. And I think that's the thing that kind of irritated me with the bad Goodreads, is that people can't seem to tell the difference between I'm plagiarizing something versus this is an archetype or I'm rewriting it or like homage is a thing. Let We've got to discuss though the age and wealth disparity between Maxim and the narrator. She is an adult. She's a full adult. She's been out on her own for a little while. You know, she's, she's yeah, not yeah, a yeah. child. Yeah. It's not a crime. But it is 
creepy. Well, especially the way he talks about it. Oh, you must dress up as Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. It's just like, mm. did, did your daddy stop you reading certain naughty books? Never grow up. Yeah, yeah. It turns into the sort of gender politics of it, doesn't it? Because he keeps saying that stuff like, oh, she knew too much and, you know, Rebecca was too independent. And knew yeah. Too I think it's perfectly legitimate to be upset with your new bride. <laughs> she admits to you on your honeymoon that she likes, in that sort of succession way, that she likes shagging around. That's perfectly fine to be upset with. But to then conflate that with women's agency and women's yeah. knowledge is where it starts to get creepy and weird. Yeah, absolutely. Because there, there is that idea in this that I know a lot of people have pushed against, which is like, abused people abuse. And it's like, well, no, not, not always. I can appreciate that he's talking from a sense of trauma himself where he's trying to protect himself and I can't risk getting another woman like Rebecca if I get somebody who is not worldly and doesn't seem like she'd ever want to be worldly, I can avoid that. But, like, with kids, you can only control them so much. Well, that was the big thing I thought about them as a couple, is the the Annie Hall bit. Do you remember in Annie Hall, where Woody Allen walks up to this couple and goes, like, you seem like a very happy couple. And she goes, well, I'm very shallow and I have no ideas or opinions. And the partner goes, well, I'm exactly the same way. <laughs> and I felt they were a bit like that, weren't they? That Maxim had this kind of glamorous or aristocratic pressure foisted mm-hmm. on him. But really, he and our narrator are both just a pair of, like, right basics. But I wonder if the gender dynamics are undone by this, the dodgy dynamics, much like they were in Jane Eyre, because at the end, he loses his whole estate, if not necessarily his wealth, and he seems so broken, and she really seems like she's in charge. It's a sort of poetic justice thing, isn't it? That even if Rebecca had it coming, you still can't shoot people, so he has to get his life ruined. I'm certainly not saying it's okay to shoot your wife, but I was actually fully convinced by the suicide by Maxim plot where it seemed like everyone in the novel was kind of confirming Rebecca was this massive string puller. She knew exactly where to stick the needle in to get people to do what she wanted. That final game. I was really convinced by that of like, I don't want to say it wasn't his fault, but it does feel like he entered a fugue state after constant abuse and just snapping yeah is, is that naive no, no i know what you mean but i think it's it's different to that isn't it because it's not that agatha christie algebra that can talk mm-hmm. or whatever like he did make the decision to bring a gun well, in the first place but also but the point is is it's like there's a metaphysical component here that even if everything that they say about rebecca is mm-hmm. true and that she could like magically control people he still shot her there's yeah. it's not like a kind of it's one or the other it's both this guy still shot someone well the fact that du maurier had mandalay burned down and then him kind of be a completely broken person by it that is showing his culpability yeah. no, because yeah. the author punishes him anyway give me some advice please so memory is always really unreliable so focus on what a text is doing with that here, we not only have a narrator looking back on her days at Manderley, but also hearing everyone else's memories of Rebecca, and everything here might be faulty. So this is another way you can't always trust a narrator. Rebecca as Rashomon. Ooh! Oh. Okay, now, a clue to our next episode. So, Daniel, we have just had a book where a light-haired wallflower competes with a dark-haired vixen named Rebecca for the heart of an aristocratic man. What if that were the exact premise of our next book? Light-haired wallflower, dark-haired vixen. So you're talking about Us? you and me. Yeah. Honey, do you think you're a dark-haired vixen? Vixen? Maybe like a mangy fox. <laughs> I've got a mange. I had to put him down. I had to 
column. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.